John Boot is a well-known figure in EU data centre circles, primarily for his role as a reviewer of the EU Code of Conduct for data centres and his work with the Certified Energy Efficiency Data Centre Award. I started by asking John if he thinks data centres are doing enough to conserve energy, water and materials in this time of crisis. I gave an example of a 2021 survey which found that 63% of data centre managers thought there is no business justification for collecting water usage data. In the past, I would absolutely 100% agree with you. Um, I don't think data centres are doing enough to conserve energy, materials and water. Um, But there are things changing at an EU level. There are a number of pieces of legislation that are due to come into force over the next two to three years, which um, I think will focus their minds very much on the conservation of energy, materials and water. That's good to hear. And... and, um... John, I've been involved, and you've been involved, I'm sure, as well, in the tech industry. I've been involved since the mid-90s. And one thing that struck me, and I think I was very much part of it as well, you know, I change my computer every two years. I never really thought about materials. I never really thought about waste. I never really thought, either I bought into the idea that a kind of digital was immaterial, or I just didn't care. You know, and I would be in large organisations and see this, you know, they change equipment at, at a whim. There was very little culture of, let's say, conservation. It was in 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 the culture of technology. Is that is that? Would you agree or disagree that you know the classical technologist is not a conservationist by a kind of cultural thinking? Yeah, and um, I think. What we have here is something that we describe in green IT circles as the the vicious circle. So what you end up doing is, um, you know, uh, somebody creates a really large data drive with lots more data on it. And then the software developers fill up that uh, data drive with all sorts of extraneous code. And then the hardware manufacturers seem to feel that they need to uh, create an even smaller or larger desk drive, um, and then and, and it just goes on and on and on. Um, you know, and you can't stop technology. You know, the amount of um, chips or transistors on a chip has increased exponentially from over the last 40, 50 years. Um, and we can do now do a lot more data processing um, for the same energy that we were doing lots and lots of processing many years ago. Um, and, and it does, has led to a proliferation of um, data and data storage and, and the manipulation of data. But I think that time is, is coming to an end. Moore's law has effectively died. Um, and, you know, until we move to a different type of chip material, such as graphene, um, we, we are basically, we are at a kind of, we're treading water, basically, in terms of, of that. Yeah, and um, just for the casual reader or listener, sorry, would you explain Moore's Law? Uh, well, Moore's Law is uh, effectively was created by um, a technologist called Moore's Law. I believe he worked for Intel. And he, he specified that the amount of chips on a, or transistors on a chip would double every two years or one year, and then he extended it to two years. And um, we have kind of reached the theoretical limits of, of Moore's law at present. Um, and as I said, only we will only get more power from a, a chip if we move to a new type of material. And just back on, on the other point you raised about the, the absolute you know, explosion and, and it's that circle, yeah, of manufacturers and, and uh, software gets bigger. So manufacturer devices need to get bigger, et cetera. And, and, but the quantity of data that's resulting from that and what I've seen in most of my experience in working with large organizations over the years is that the vast majority of data 90 to 95% that gets created does not actually get used. 
uh, or is only used for a couple of weeks, basically two or three months after it's stored, nobody ever goes back to it. So we're getting this huge bulging explosion of of, of data that in many ways uh, the poor quality or low level or stuff that we're not going to go back to is is going to you know override the quality stuff it, I, in my experience there's less information architecture skills today than there was 20 years ago uh, there's less of people have essentially given up and and a kind of the hope is that artificial intelligence or some other technology will help understand the data but it's like there's this tsunami of data and organizations have in many cases just been incapable and given up in the, in the very idea of managing it. I, I would have absolutely agree with you. I call that sort of data frivolous data. It's, it's pictures of cats dancing on Facebook and, and jokes that come around and, and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. I, I actually, when I speak about this at various events, I've got um, a slide of a picture of um, a, a dinner that somebody had in a restaurant. And I asked the audience, I say, you know, 30 years ago, um, I didn't take a Polaroid of my Sunday lunch and bring it to the pub on Sunday evening and show all my mates what I had to eat. So why do people think that it's, it's um, necessary and something that they should be doing now? Um, and, and that's just basically user education. Um, but, you know, photographs are personal things. They're developed, you know, taken by people for, for memories. And yes, it is true that a lot of that data is never seen again or, you know, in maybe two years time when they're looking back through their um, file to see what, what photographs were taken. And it's very difficult to take something away from somebody. Um, you know, it, it's the whole photographic industry is now digital uh, back in the day you would you know you'd take your film you'd take your canister to the processing company they would process it and then they would send you uh, a couple of days later a pack of photographs and you look through them um, and you'd probably discard the ones you didn't want and keep the ones you did and then you'd put them away somewhere safe uh, to look back through it later on I mean my mother passed away two years ago and we've got a lot of her stuff at the house and there is a box of photographs. Um, am I going to look through them? Probably not. I shall put them into storage. Um, so people do store stuff that they don't need. Um, but it, but in this case, it does have an energy storage element. So we should be a little bit more circumspect about what we keep and what we discard. Going back into data, um, and you talked about AI using that data. I think a lot of companies um, feel that some of the data they've collected over their operations is useful. It, it, there, there may be a little nugget in there um, that can help them shape their strategy for moving forward, or it could provide some extra input into a, a bid or a project that they're working on. And that's why they don't want to get rid of it. Um, but the, we, I think what we'll see in the future is there will be people who will probably be known as um, data destroyers or data uh, analysis scientists that will, will look through that data and go, is this useful to the business? No. Right. Let's get rid of it then. Um, but, you know, we're not there yet. But I think the climate emergency and the cost of storage, especially with the energy price increases across Europe uh, recently, um, it is definitely something that needs to be, the question needs to be asked and the, the management needs to put steps in place to, to deal with it. You, you said there a little bit about the photos and I've done some analysis of photos. Um, last year, we took 1.4, roughly 1.4 trillion photos. So we took more photos than in the entire 20th century. Uh, and I was talking to this um really interesting uh, Australian who's, uh, she basically helps people, uh, families and things manage their photos. And she's talking about concepts like, you know, waiting for the right moment, that we need to retrain or, or develop senses of rather than click, 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 you know, to really wait for 
the right moment and then to have habits of after you've taken photos to immediately go over them you know in the in the process and and then immediately half of them will say oh that's horrible i don't want that one don't want that one but if you wait until you've got twenty five thousand on your phone you just won't go back in in the process and i think I think the same in organizational data. I see a lot of organizations I deal with simply overwhelmed by the by the quantity of data that they're producing. And it's like the nugget becomes a nugget in a vastly bigger pile of clay and rock. And the, the, the rock and the clay gets 10 times bigger every year. So finding that nugget becomes harder in because of the sheer quantity of, of data that's being produced. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And, you know, data mining is not a, a new concept. It's been around since kind of like the late 90s. Um, and you're right, you know, it, it is, we are going through a lot of stuff and it's human nature though. People need to think, you know, is this actually data that we need to keep and record for posterity? Um, and we do need to be a little bit more I'm going to call it brutal, actually, in, um, in in what we keep and what we don't keep. Connected with organizational data as well. One thing's that you know, area that I've been working on, the web and web connected with that web analytics. In my experience, most web analytics and tracking data, and that's even, it's problematic to begin with from, you know, privacy point of views. In the vast majority of organizations, that is has very little value of how many people visited yesterday, how many pages did they look at, how much time did they spend on the page, and tons of other analytics that I have found most web teams really struggle to actually get any, any useful insights out of this data. So often we're getting flooded by types of data that there's an internal feeling or need that, oh, we need to analyze this, we need to be looking at this. And yet, an awful lot of this organizational data does not actually lead to good insights or, or, or useful insights. But there is the feeling that, oh, we need to be tracking people. Most websites don't need to track people because there's, there's really not all that reason. And maybe you disagree with me, but it's just my experience. That I'd be, I've been at so many Monday morning meetings analyzing the analytics data and it was like a type of theater people pretending to say intelligent things but really nothing happening as a result of those conversations oh what will we do will we delete that page will we keep it will we rewrite it no real positive actions but this kind of data theater going on in so many organizations that's a really great term actually data theater um and I would absolutely agree with you. We are we are collecting data for data's sake. Um, and I think if you move to something like the Internet of Things, and I'll give you an example. So um, we, we work with a, a couple of organisations and some of them were quite proud to tell me that they're collecting 1,440 data points uh, a day for, on temperature of a, of a certain item in a certain data centre. And you think, well, why are you recording 1,440 data points? Um, the temperature variations are so minute. Really, what you want to be looking at is saying, okay, you look through the data and you go, right, so for 1,420 of those data points that you've collected, the temperature was 23 degrees. Um, why not consolidate it and go, right, the average temperature of that particular item in that particular data center was 23 degrees and shrink it down to one data point or two data points. So only look at the actual things where it's gone out of a, a certain system boundary um, and, and then analyze that and only record, only keep what you actually need in order to determine, um, you know, why that temperature rose, what, what was actually happening for that temperature to rise. And, and, you know, I think they kind of agree with me. It's just that it's the logic of, of looking at that daily data and then shrinking it down. And sometimes it's just easier to keep it in their minds. Um, but I, I asked that question and said, you know, so why, why have we got 1,440 points 
where it says that the temperature was 23.2 degrees. And they kind of look at me as if to say, well, we don't know. So, so I mean, it's quite interesting that point of view. I think it's, um, we as a people have kind of forgotten what data is and, and we're hoarding data for, for no real reason. And it's something that we need to think about. Now, I do know that um, there are a number of organisations that I'm involved with that are looking at the actual coding of software. Um, and it's a very good philosophy that they put forward. So they talk about the moon landings in 1969. And they say, you know, the computer that was running all that was very limited in its storage space. And the code was very limited in its storage space. So just act in your coding like you have got a barrier that you cannot go over and to shrink what you're actually getting the chips to do. And by the same token, you go, we, we haven't got enough space to keep it, what I call frivolous data. Um, so you have to be circumspect. You have to have a, an annual spring clean or an autumn clean and go through and go, right, is that useful? Yes, I'll keep it. Is that useful? No, right, let's get rid and get rid. And I think, as I said earlier, the, the energy costs of storing data are going to rise across Europe at least. And, and those conversations will need to be had and they'll be need to be had at senior level. And a decision will have to come down from high to say, right, let's, let's look at the data. Let's see what's useful. Let's see what's not useful and, and, and take steps to get rid or convert it into tape drives or CDs and, and put it into physical storage. And that is another green IT concept of hot, warm, cold and frozen data. So hot data is data that you access you know, within a, a month um, and then it would move to warm. Warm data is stuff that you may have looked at over six months. Um, cold data is data that you haven't looked at for a year and frozen data is stuff that you haven't looked at in two years and, and you can change those variables if you want if you if you consider hot data to be a week then that's the prerogative of the company um, but the the idea is is to make it really difficult to access that cold and frozen data by taking it off the system so that people that want to use it have to put a special request into their IT service team in order to, for somebody to go and retrieve the physical medium and bring it back in and put it on. And of course, a CD or a tape doesn't use any energy. A data center in, a, in an enterprise can be using up to 40% of the energy that the entire enterprise uses. And, and that, of course, that varies depending on what type of business your business is actually in. Um, and quite rightly, I think the financial directors are going, well, you know, what, what is my data center doing? And, and the IT directors have been going, well, it supports the business and, and you can't really, um, you know, start to ask us to do any reductions um, because we're supporting the business. But what I think is going to happen in future is they're going to go, well, yeah, OK, but how are you supporting the business? What are you doing that is so integral, which is costing me this much money? You know, we are using energy prices going up affects all organizations. But if you've got a, a high ICT focused organization, then clearly the, the, the cost of the ICT system and its um, data center and all of its supporting infrastructure is going to affect how that business works. Now, I'm not advocating cutting to the bone, but, you know, in recessionary times and when times are tight, that's exactly what does happen. And, you know, people are going to go look at the data and go, you are using 40% of my energy. Um, and I don't know what metrics you're using to justify that you are using 40% of my energy. We need to start to look at what we're doing. You know, is there any quick wins, easy wins that we can adopt, even moving forward to more detailed um measures or actions you can take to really reduce your ICT stack, but still continue to support the business. I think, you know, one of the things that always amazes me is 
let's take, for instance, the latest Windows, right? I mean, I, I haven't looked, to be honest, but I, it, it must be terabytes or, or at least, you know, gigabytes of information that's stored. And you look at your, look at the average user, and most users don't use half of the facilities that are available on the operating systems. So you, you think, you know, why can't we do something about that? Um, can we not reduce stuff a little bit more, get rid of this um, over-ambitious coding, um, reduce the amount of data storage that's required? But it's a bit like Pandora's box, Jerry. You know, um, once you open it, you can't, you can't take, you can't give something to somebody and expect them not to use it and then take it away from them. Certainly take it away in, in its entirety, but, you know, maybe as you've outlined and this growing maturity uh, of, and, and these crises that we're hitting as well, there's, there's maybe, you know, I remember reading about the history of sugar and that, you know, sugar consumption in most countries peaked in the 70s. And then, and it has been in at least not a radical decline, but somewhat of a decline because we got too much of a good thing in a way. And then we realized that it had a lot of negative side effects. But the, in, in the industry, and I think this is broadly true, whether it is the private cloud or the private data center world or the public cloud, like you, you mentioned about the IT managers, and I would have found the exact same a kind of culture of the CIO, that there is a feeling that the more tech we have, the more data we have, the more the organization is dependent on us and the more important we we seem. So, you know, having lots of data is good for my career, so to speak. And then in the public cloud, it's well, we'll, we'll bring them in with free plans or cheap and then, you know, then we'll tear it upwards and make and make lots of, of profit from it. So there's a, a kind of a, a negative incentive within data centers to encourage the growth of data. Like there's no real incentives in a data center management culture to, to have less data. Uh, yeah, well, let me just clarify something here, right? So um, a data center... There are three, there are two, three different types of data centers. One is an enterprise data center, and within that type of data center, the the, the whole operation is owned and managed by one organization. And then we have co-location type data centers who who provide hosting services for multiple organizations. And these may be where their existing facility has run out of power, space, or cooling, and they need to find some other. Um, location to you know to, to host their physical infrastructure um, and then we have the cloud guys the hyperscalers now effectively these guys are all enterprise guys because they own and operate their own facilities but they also have points of presence in co-location data centers and it, it would be wrong to say that the data center is at fault here it's the cloud provider that is providing all of these services um, and, you know, the cloud is hugely important at the moment. Um, as a, You know, it helped us through pandemic. It allows higher energy efficiency to, to occur um, because you're using virtualization techniques. So many companies will be using the same physical platform, which therefore means that they don't have to provide that physical infrastructure and run the energy on it. And if you were to look at um, how much enterprise compute is now in the cloud, there should be a corresponding reduction in on-prem data centers. And that is actually happening. Now, unfortunately, what's happening is, is that although the compute is moving, the guys that are running their enterprise data centers aren't then moving on and reducing what they need in terms of their supporting infrastructure. Uh, so they're still maintaining the same temperature or aspects for a vastly reduced ICT estate. Um, and, and this is the kind of customer we work with. So we kind of say to them, you know, right, you've just moved the, you know, 50% of your IT equipment into the cloud, but you haven't made the corresponding 50% reduction in your cooling um, power. Um, and maybe you need to think about shrinking that size of that facility. 
and so I think we're in a kind of transition period. Um, people will start to be looking at their enterprise facilities once they've moved into the cloud, and we will see the corresponding energy um, savings. And this, you know, the headline um, kind of data centers use two, three, four percent of global energy use. But how much does ICT use um, in that is not in a data center? And when I say not in a data center, I mean the server cupboards, the small 50 rack data centers, stuff that we don't consider to be a data center. The name data center has changed its kind of meaning. And now we kind of mean it to be 100 megawatt hyperscale, uh, Amazon, Google, Meta, Facebook, etc. all those guys. And that's absolutely not the case. In fact, you know, it's only 15% of um, our enterprise ICT is in the cloud. Um, so there's 85% of it. It's still in poorly managed on-site um, data centers where, and I call it the tragedy of the commons, it, where, you know, the people that are running those facilities are not data center professionals. They are IT people that just happen to have a data center under their control. And they very rarely go to the big trade events. They very rarely see what products um, and techniques and concepts that are available to, for them to reduce their energy consumption. And, you know, they they just can't apply some of the more onerous energy efficiency um, measures that you can take. And, and they're the big problem at the moment, I think. There's a lot of... And, and the thing is, we don't know who they are because we're not measuring them, you know. But for instance, in the UK, we have something called the Climate Change Agreement. And the Climate Change Agreement is for commercial data centers. And this is mostly the um, co-location guys. And from recent, um, the fourth period of the climate change agreement data centers, it was just over 3.8 million tons of CO2 that was uh, allocated the emissions. And that actually corresponds to close to 12 terawatt hours um, of, of all UK generation in that, that period, that, that two year period which is actually around 4% of um, the UK's energy use. But it still doesn't include the likes of BT. It doesn't include Sky's content delivery networks. It doesn't cover any distributed IT. So I think if we start looking at it from that point of view, um, we are vastly underestimating our data center energy use. Um, and it, it's almost impossible to find. Now, you remember earlier I said that... Um, there's EU legislation coming in that I think is going to focus the minds of data center operators and enterprise data center operators. And, and it will do because we're effectively, they are asking for information and they bring in the, the actual, uh, the bar to report down to 50 kilowatts. And that is um, exceptionally low and it is going to pull, pull all of those smaller data centers together. So once that exercise is done, in Europe, at least, the 27 member states, we will have excellent visibility of our distributed IT. And who knows what will happen then? Um, now, I'm not going to preempt or, or, or suggest anything to the Commission as to what they could do. But, you know... But if you had to, what would you say? <laughs> well, the, 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 there are policy measures that can take place. Um, you know, and, and it's like any government can can use instruments to to change behaviour, and one of them may well be, although it wouldn't be, to my mind, a viable solution, was to operate on the on the PUE metric and say that if your data centre is above one point five, then you have to take steps to reduce it to below one point five, and of course that may mean that because it's a legacy facility. It may be very difficult to do that, but there might be a carrot and there may be a stick. So it means well, yeah, you can operate a 1.7 PUE data center, but you're going to get fined um, for for being over 1.7. And um, if you could just explain that metric, please, just for... Yeah, so the PUE metric is actually, um, it's much misaligned. Um, even within the industry, I, I don't think there are many people that actually understand what it means, but it's the total energy that goes into a data center 
divided by the amount of energy that's used by the IT equipment. So in effect, it's a ratio of um, how much energy is going in, um, which includes the cooling, power, smoothing, um, ancillary services against how much uh, actual energy is used for the IT. So the, the theoretical minimum is one, um, but we have data centers operating in Europe that are probably close to three, four, five, six, uh, because they've, they're over-engineered. One thing that I've found um, over the years is, um, I don't know how to put it, the inefficiency of the IT department or the, the lack of, like in, in many cases when we were uh, tracking the quantity of, of data in an organization, many IT departments I dealt with didn't even know how many servers they had, let alone how many, how much data they had, that there was, yes, there was huge inefficiency. Um, and the, but that then comparing that inefficiency, say, to the cloud, what I found in the cloud in a lot of environments is you get 2x efficiency, but then you store 6x the data because it becomes so much easier to store the data. Uh, there's great efficiency in the production and the storage of the data that we we are kind of, I think it's called the Jevons paradox or whatever, you know, we, we eat up the efficiency by storing way, way more than we would have originally stored in the more inefficient environment. One thing that, you know, I often find is I say to them, are you operating the IT information library, ITIL? Uh, and they'll go, yes. And I say, well, can I have a look at your service catalogue then, please? Uh, and, you know, they they hum and heart um, and, you know, they then don't produce the ITIL service catalogue. And I'm kind of saying, right, okay, um, so tell me about your, how do you manage your IT estate? What project management are you adopting within this organisation? Uh, and the reason for that is that, and I'm not going to name them, but I went to one a couple of years ago and uh, I said, oh, that looks an interesting uh, brand new stack of IT equipment in that rack. And he said, yeah, he said, that, that's um, the new system for X. And he said, and over there on that rack is the old system for X. And then he said, and over there is the even older system for X. And you kind of go, right, so if you'd adopted Prince 2, um, there is a decommissioning piece in, in the Prince 2 process, and there's also a lessons learned. And then in the IT catalogue, you know, you should be there should be an historical element which talks about what services there are uh, in your organisation at the moment, including the recent stuff. So what we've got here is a situation where there is management tools that are available, and the nature of IT projects is that once the project is done, nobody's going to turn off the old system because you never know you might need to go back to it because the new system might fail. And then a couple of weeks later, the project team disbands and you've got this system sitting there in your data center, still on, taking up power and network resources. And it is expensive, you know, that I think, uh, in the Eureka project, we estimated that it was £14,000 per annum to keep one server up and running, including all the software and the licensing aspects of it. And it's a zombie server. It's just sitting there doing nothing. And, you know, the Uptime Institute have identified that up to 40% of servers in enterprises in the US could be zombie servers. And that I, I, I talked to... Uh... You just remind me of a conversation I had with an enterprise architect a while ago, and he, he'd spent 30 or 40 years in, in, in the IT industry. And he says he'd never been in an organization, not once that he could remember, where he couldn't remove 90% of, of the IT architecture and make that organization run better. And, and um, we've seen this, you know, this high movement to the cloud. Um, and I think what's happening is, is that people are seeing the cloud as the silver bullet, um, that it will help them with their IT problems. But I don't think they are because of the way that they're actually moving their services into the cloud. They're not performing a kind of overall analysis of 
why we have got that particular uh, application and its physical hardware. Why are we moving something that's already zombie into uh, into the cloud? Um, I, in the past, I've done a lot of um, data center migrations. And I'll give you one example. So we were moving a customer from one data center into another data center. And um, we had a team of guys there. And I think we shifted about 400 items. So we, we basically would consolidate. We were doing all that work, you know, bringing the server in after it had been packed, unpacking it, putting it in the rack, connecting it up, connecting up to the network, etc. And there was this one particular machine that um, the client said, oh, it's not working. I can't, oh, right then. So I went off and um, I almost, I replaced virtually every single component in that machine except for the disk. And I was still getting the dreaded NT loader not present or correct. And at the end of the day, I went to see the client and I said, right, everything's done. There's just this one particular box that's... Um, it's, it's evaded all attempts for me to repair it. And he went, oh, I don't know why we moved that. It, it's never worked. And you think, how many time, you know, how many hours did I spend trying to get that machine working when when it didn't work and it shouldn't have been there? And, you know, it, we, yeah, you know, to come back to what we were saying, organizations need to do a deep spring clean on their own facilities, to, even if it's just to... Reduce their energy bill. Um, that would be a good start. And then once they've done the, the spring clean, it's it's going to help them, you know, rationalise and sort out their their entire IT infrastructure, and probably free up lots of resources, um, network capacity, power capacity in their existing facilities, and then they can go to internal clouds. You know, they can build internal cloud structures um, themselves. And then they need to be, you know, proper gatekeepers on on the storage. You know, you only put this data in there if it's useful to the organisation. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the thing is, Jerry, the tools are out there. Um, it now needs the internal will of the executive directors to implement the green IT and energy efficiency requirements because the cloud's not going away. The cloud is going to be there. You know, it's integral to the way that the world works at the moment. Um, but it does need to be improved. And I'm sure and I know through conversations I've had with my clients that they they want to be, you know, they don't want to be sitting there carrying instant you know, data that's frivolous. They want to be seen as um, addressing the climate crisis. They want to see be seen as being efficient. Um and, and, and it's just, you know, what does it take? Do, do energy prices, well, energy prices are already quadrupled. Um, if you think about, and there's another example. So back in the night, I'm old enough to remember the 1973 oil crisis. I was only a, a nipper at the time. But my dad used to literally moan at me if I left the light on in my room. And that habit has stayed with me till today. You know, if I'm in a room, I only turn the light on when I enter the room and I'll turn the light off when I leave the room. Um, and, and maybe that, that kind of mentality has to be cascaded down. And just connect with it, uh, related, or I think it's related at least, is this obsession, in my experience, with the, the, the latest, greatest processor. Like, so it's not just storage of data, it's processing. And I find that there's a lot of unnecessary processing or that organizations will change like their processing if the latest gizmo and it only has, you know, 0.0001% improvement. You know, they'll go for it and they'll get rid of perfectly good working equipment or, you know, the broad obsession with I must have the Ferrari of processing every time, even though I don't really need it for the job that's there, but I really want to say that I have the, the latest and greatest and mega processing. So we're process, often trying, you know, processing that is hundreds of times greater than is what is necessary for the problem at hand. Absolutely. But I think that's changing. So we've had recent news that um, some of, I think it's Google are extending the lives of their servers from three years to five years. I think uh, Facebook have, or Meta have done the same. 
Amazon are definitely going to be sweating their assets. Now, I don't think they're doing this for um, altruistic reasons or for energy efficiency reasons. I think they're doing it because of the shortage of chips. Um, so they're basically sweating their assets a bit long, a bit longer. And, and this is a well-known green IT uh, concept as well. It's, you know, if, if something works, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, let it continue to do what it what it needs to do. And up until recently, Moore's law would have kind of pointed you towards changing it out because you are getting more processing power for every kilowatt of energy. But as we mentioned earlier, the gains that you get from having the latest, greatest equipment are absolutely steadily diminishing. So there is no reason to go out and get the best phone or the best uh, server in that class, as long as it's, unless you are in um, an environment where you've got an absolute need to be faster and better than everybody else. And, and for that is a very small niche of the banking sector, which is the high frequency trading element um, where where the, the processor will make a difference to your bottom line. But that's only like 0.5%, not even that, it's probably less than that of all, um, you know, IT trading. So only those guys should do it. But of course, what will happen then is, is that, you know, because it's such a small market, um, maybe the processes won't be increased on such a frequent basis. Um, the other thing to consider is is that there is a whole ecosystem that's built up with um, developing faster, better chips and faster, better servers. Um, they, their business models are based on people replacing their equipment every two to three years. So, of course, if that time period gets extended, then obviously we're going to see the development side of things start to slow down as well. But, you know, which might be a good thing. Well, I was just about to say, I think it would be a good thing. Because, you know, as we said earlier, why have we got bloatware operating systems that are running all sorts of different and wonderful code that 99% of the people don't use? I sit here in front of my PC and I can tell you that I use probably five or six applications. I use Word to do documents. I use Excel to do spreadsheets and, and, and financial stuff. I use the Internet. To, to keep in touch with people and I do podcasts so I use Zoom and have meetings I don't, you know, I look through, I click on the old Windows button, the bottom of my PC and I look through all of these services and you know, I can tell you that there's at least three quarters of them I've never ever used um, Paint 3D, phone link photos, uh, yeah I've got some photos publisher, never use it Skype it's on there. I've never used. I, I don't use it anymore. Spotify, never use it. Sticky notes, I never use it. These applications shouldn't be embodied or you know, embedded into the operating system. They should be specific requests by the user to, to use them. Um, and that would reduce the amount of stuff needed. I, I almost feel it physically pains me when I hear this about hard drives that are that are work that are okay and working being physically trashed, you know, for security reasons. Um, you know, and I know I understand, it, and it's the irony, isn't it, of of our world, our digital world. We're, we're constantly told, "Well, you got to keep multiple copies because it's so you know unstable," and then you're told. Ah, you got to physically trash this because you can never really 100% get rid of it. You know, that surely, you know, this, we can change that where we don't need to physically destroy something. You know, a server can have caused between one and two tonne of CO2 to manufacture. And, you know, that, that physical destruction of something that is working in a climate crisis where material impact of mining is is absolutely huge on the planet, you know, it, it's not a good look for the IT industry. And I think what annoys me more and more is that they are absolutely just shredded. Um, and I don't know what they're actually doing with the, the component materials. And I think that's another problem that the IT manufacturers need to address is the recyclability of those components 
Now, I know the right of repair has just come into EU legislation, and that will no doubt trigger um, a lot of angst within the within the manufacturing community. Um, and I do recall being on a NSF, um, which is part of the um, Energy Star, as an observer and seeing a draft for uh, server makeup. And at the time, there was a, a requirement for you know eighty five percent of the server components to be recyclable. And there was a massive pushback from the manufacturing companies um, that they 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 wouldn't and couldn't do eighty five percent. And you know they, they they really did water them down with the actual requirements. Uh, the stats that I have done, and this is globally, not in in electronics in general, not not just servers, is that less than twenty percent uh, globally recycled, and even what is recycled. No more than about thirty percent of reusable materials retrieved, because of the sheer complexity of the material design of the products that you just can't. When you get one, when you get the copper or whatever, the, you, you lose the other stuff by the process you've used. It's an it's an absolutely massive problem, um, and, and you know, e-waste as it's called, um, which which includes IT equipment, but also things like fridges and cookers and bread makers and microwaves and old coffee machines it's growing on a absolutely it's phenomenal basis and and i think the problem is is that um these companies to date have not really worried about the aftermath and and we do have a kind of use it and dispose of it mentality um, we don't keep tend to keep things on you know there is an inherent five-year replacement cycle for uh, kitchen items, for instance, and and that's a business model that kind of wants you to keep buying. Um, I mean, I'll just give an example. Very recently, our five-year-old washing machine blew up, literally blew up, um, and we had to go out and buy a new one. Um, now, I would have much preferred to have got it repaired, but I said to my wife, you know, um, you know, how much would it be to get somebody to look at it? She said, well, you know, it will be a hundred and it'll be a hundred pounds just for him to turn up at the door. And then if you find something wrong with it and he has to wait, you know, and all the time the washing's mounting up in the house, um, it's cheaper and easier just to go to the shop and buy a new one and get it delivered. And that's what we did. And But I think that business model is kind of, it, it's doomed to failure in these resource restricted times. Energy prices going up means that the embodied carbon in a, in a, in a device is going to be up. The right to repair legislation from the European Union means that those items need to be repairable. Um, and we're going to see, I think, hopefully, we'll start to see items that are designed to last 10, 15, 20 years, but also be able to be uh, be modular in nature so that you can basically take a component out and put a new component in and get that done. And there are other industries that do this. I mean, you know, refurbished uh, gearboxes and engines, for instance, can be purchased um, from the motor manufacturers. Look at what happened with the motor manufacturers. You know, I remember going to breakers yards when I had, uh, you know, a 1975 um, Triumph Dolomite and finding old Triumph Dolomites in a very precarious kind of uh, breaker's yard situation. And you kind of took your life in your hands to go and recover some of the items because the cars were just basically chucked in a big pile. Nowadays, if you go to a breaker's yard, you, you don't even go onto the, onto the area where the cars are because they've got people working in there that are taking out all of the, you know, the, the value, the useful items and bagging them up and putting them in a the storeroom. You go in and go, I need a shock absorber for a Triumph or whatever, Ford Fiesta, and the guy will go, there you go, 50 quid, please. You don't go out and do your own kind of breaking now. It's all um, it's all become a lot more professional. And why did that happen? Because the EU put a law in place saying motor vehicles need to be 85% recyclable. The vast majority of websites that I know of or interacted with 
do not need 99.9% uptime and, and the same equivalent for data. And I think this pursuit of absolute, a kind of obsession with a, a, a perfectionist metric of, you know, we will be on all this 99.99% of time, because a lot of that drives Oh, we can't. We have to get rid of the server after three years, even if it's working, because of the statistical chance that it might cause a flaw after three and a half years. That you know, maybe this, this, these metrics of that how we measure, we could say just like you said earlier, a lot of data can be frozen or cold. A lot of data doesn't always have to be a bit, doesn't have to be even even in this cloud environment can uh, comfortably deal with 90% or 95%. And if you had those lesser, you know, standards, the, equip the equipment could last a lot longer. Okay. So um, I think this is down to risk and the risk appetite of organizations. And it's something that I've actually included in a, an impending uh, building sustainable data centers course that we plan to deliver uh, next year. And it's basically saying to people, what is your perception of risk? Why, why are you um, building these facilities with these multiple layers of security and these multiple backups of everything? What is it you're actually trying to protect now, I'll give you an example. When I worked for a rather large systems integrator, I was seconded into a retailer's. And um, we used to get basically requests from the business unit um, to to provide IT equipment. And um, we, we had a kind of a spreadsheet that we would use to, in order to do that. So the guy, you know, the, 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 the architecture was X different service of this and uh, bit of storage array there and then there was this and there was networking and all that sort of stuff and I said to him right so what do you want he said I want an all singing all dancing 24 7 365 um, totally resilient approach I said okay so we worked out on the spreadsheet which somebody else had done so I hadn't had any input into the way this and it came out it was it was close on three quarters of a million pounds to provide the hardware for this particular service and um, I sent that to him and, and, he, and he looked at it in shock and he said, well, this is far, you know, this exceeds my budget completely. And I said, well, you've asked for an all singing, all dancing, three, three, six, you know, 24-7, 365 solution. What you need to do now is to work out whether or not you actually need those services 24-7, 365, because I think you'll find that you probably don't. And I think this is, it's an education piece for IT architects as well. Uh, and it's also pushing back on, the business it's like saying to the business why do you need this service up for all of that length of time do you need this disaster recovery business continuity element would you you know can you accept a service being down for three hours during the day until it can be recovered what actual impact is that going to have on the business unit itself and i think one of the um, and this is why I continually go back to the code of conduct um, for data centers energy efficiency and and the use of its best practices as a strategic and cultural change tool. You need to ask those questions. Um, now, what I would do in that particular retail environment, I was actually asked to do business continuity and disaster recovery, and I went round and, and spoke to every single business unit and said, you know. What do you consider to be your absolutely must have um, application that's always available 24-7-365? And funnily enough, when I asked the guy, the, the IT director, he said, oh, C-suite email. And I just looked at him with this incredulous look on my face and said, really? <laughs> email? And he said, yeah. And I said, what? So what, the, the senior management team can't pick up phones? Or they can't walk into the next guy's office on the same floor that they're all on? Why, why would you consider C-suite email as being your priority one application? You know, your priority one applications are things that are related to the business. So in your case, it is your EPOS system, electronic point of sale, so that when people come into your stores, 
They can select the goods that they want to do and pay for them, which puts money in your bank. But more importantly, um, it also marks a link on the logistics system so that the logistics system knows that that item is has been sold and it can restock it. So those are your two most important applications, getting the money in and your supply chain. C-suite email, my friend, is a lot lower down the list. And I think what companies should do, or IT directors should do, they should do the audit, they should work out exactly what applications they're providing to the business, and then the physical hardware that it's running on. And then they need to say, right, what actual business continuity disaster recovery aspects do I need to apply to these facilities? And what they would do then is, you know, they would go, right, in my data center, I'm going to have a tier four area, which is the, for the most critical of critical systems, being in this case, the EPOS and the supply chain software, and then graduate down. So that would, those, and you'd probably find actually that it would be one rack that would need to be at tier four, which is the Uptime Institute classification for mission criticality or an EN 5600 class war. And then that most of your application can probably be notched down a level because they're not mission critical. Yeah, okay, it's uh, it's nice to have, but is it stopping me from doing my work? No, when it comes back up, I'll be able to do what I need to do. And I think the problem is, is that a lot of IT departments treat every single application that they have within their company as being mission critical, when actually it certainly isn't. Um, and you, But you can only do that if you are prepared to undertake that deep strategic and cultural analysis of your organization's IT stack and be prepared to make the decisions that will reduce your energy consumption and potentially reduce your procurement requirements. So instead of replacing your laptops or your desktops every three years, extend it to five years. It's a win-win-win for the organization. And what it will do is it will force the IT companies and all of their, their supply chain to really start to think about their business models, especially in line with the climate emergency. In Ireland at the moment, data centres are, are consuming 14% of electricity and delivering 1,800 permanent jobs. So 1,800 jobs, 14% of, of Irish electricity. And from studying, you know, the, and these are the, you know, the big data centres, the, the hyperscale or whatever, that they, they're terrible essentially for the local community. Uh, they take the land, they take the energy and they take the water locally. And, and they, you know, they give very little back to the actual community. So the sense of the data center is not a good community member in the, like the purport, I saw this study in Paris, which said, you know, for if, if a, a store, you know, a typical store would give 50 jobs, then the equivalent data center would give one job back to the community. And I don't know, if you, I know it's a hard thing to ask a question about, but the, that that sense of of being a good, you know, being a good local or community member for data centers, it's it's not something that that they deliver a lot of value to the local community with. Yeah, and you know, um, I think I've been talking about this for some time. We we. The, the sector itself, and, and because it's so fragmented and diverse, I think what we're going to refer to here is the hyperscalers and the co-location guys, what I would call the, the professional data center operators. It's a relatively new industry, Jerry. You know, it really only became um, a viable business after the dot-com boom of the early 2000s. And, and effectively, it, it was to sell space and to recover the monies that have that have been spent on this dot com boom that, uh, and all of the infrastructure that was built for it, and the, it's funny, you know, when you talk to the industry's professionals, and, and I do frequently go to every event that I can, and you and you talk to them, um, it, it's very clear that 
a lot of them are they're engineers um engineers and technicians and they are not that well kind of acquainted with the other functions such as hr marketing publicity um management really you know it's it's still a very immature industry in certain respects and they are in a huge growth spurt at the moment right and the the industry globally is short of some 400,000 technical people and that doesn't include you know the, the those administrative managerial roles that I think um, would would come part of that business it is changing um, there are now people that that can talk a good talk but we're very bad as a sector of um, saying our message which our message is look you know we are providing the digital infrastructure that that modern day life relies on because the in the sector is staffed with people whose ability to get a good message across is limited because of the nature of their uh, work background you know these guys were installing cables they were building panels they were maintaining data centers they they weren't professional pr people um and they're not very good at getting that message across but i think that's changing and you know gary Connolly, for instance who who who's host for ireland um he, he's doing a really good job of getting that message across and you know ireland the problems in ireland due to data centers are not due to data centers the problems in ireland that are impacting data centers are are down to the fact that the government and Eargrid and all of those other elements, people, organisations, have not sufficiently taken on board what Gary has been telling them for the last eight years or so. And they haven't done, they haven't met their side of the bargain. They, have, they haven't put in place the infrastructure that's required and developed the energy storage systems that um, are part of, you know, a new 21st grid infrastructure that can take renewables on board. So it is really the, the energy industry's problem in Ireland what, as to why data centres are perceived to be a problem. They are in effect deflecting the blame onto the data centres. But put it this way, if data centres account for 14%, who gave them the planning permission? who we should have been putting infrastructure in place. And, you know, those are questions that need to be asked. Um, so I don't think you can blame the data centres per se for being up at 14% of the grid and only employing. And I would, actually, I'd cast doubt on that 1,400 jobs as well because there's probably, you, th you need to think about the ecosystem. So it might be 1,400 direct jobs, but how many other jobs have been created by the fact that those data centers are there. And we have to consider this in the same way as we, for instance, could consider any major industry. It's the support services that are servicing those industries, electromechanical guys. Think about, you know what, and this is sometimes not said, Jerry, but Ireland, Irish subcontractors that are skilled in the construction of data centers are operating globally right and that is purely because they did so much work in data centers in dublin and they know that you know they were seen to be a good workforce they built stuff and that that element is very rarely mentioned um but it's a you are exporting data center knowledge and construction globally. And that employs a lot more people than the 1,400 people you just mentioned. Well, yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's definitely that, but still relatively speaking, I mean, Ireland's a small economy, but there's still two and a half million employed. And it's, um, you know, the, the actual returns, and you said, yeah, the the... The other jobs, but those jobs, that's the whole promise of the cloud. There is likely to be in Seattle or Hamburg, you know, the Mead data center is not good for the Mead community, basically, because it takes 
the local people's water. It takes their electricity, it takes their land. And they might get a few cleaning jobs or security jobs there. You know, that that's, you know, it's not a good community uh, prospect. It, and, and I would say that, yes, you're probably right up to this point. But I think the data centre sector has recognised that. And I know for a fact that we're working on a project in Portugal. And one of the elements from the, the, the sustainability and ESG elements is that they are creating a local college and they are going to be taking uh, school leavers through that college in order to give them the skills to work within the facility. Um, and you could argue that that's, you know, smacking of um, estate type medieval um, kind of thing. But, you know, if the people have the skills, and, and I know this, um, people that work for somebody like Amazon, they can get a job working in Dublin as a, as a technician, and then they can apply for similar jobs anywhere on the Amazon estate. So they could go to the US and they can increase their knowledge, their skills and get promoted um, and basically make a great career for themselves. And then they can move again. They can go to the Asia Pac region. They can go to India. They can experience all sorts of life. As I said earlier, the data center sector is very naive in terms of its maturity of its, um, you know, it's a 22-year-old industry. Um, there will be some growing pains. And I think that, you know, through the actions of myself, talking about this on this podcast and, and all of the other relationships that I have um, at all of the trade events and all the speaking um, engagements that I do, that slowly and surely, you know, it's like a super tanker changing direction. Um, they're in they're in kind of a panicky mode at the moment because they know that energy prices are going to be high. They know that there's all this impending legislation come down and they appreciate that they maybe have been doing things and saying things that are as a result of their immaturity. They will mature. And I think that you'll find in, we had this conversation in 10 years time that the, the entire view will be hopefully somewhat different. If you're interested in these sorts of ideas, please check out my book, Worldwide Waste, at jerrymcgovern.com. To hear other interesting podcasts, please visit thisishcd.com.